0: Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services, and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues.
1: There's a responsibility that financial institutions have in monitoring their employees. That's just the bottom line. You just got to do it in an ethical way. You've got to do it in a way that you're not breaching their trust.
0: Today's episode is a special one produced in association with Smarsh, a rapidly growing technology firm providing financial services companies with the tools to capture, store, and monitor their communications. Today's guests explain how the world's largest companies are tracking staff behaviour and the alternative revenue generating uses for the data collected as a result. They outline the ethical guidelines they believe finance bosses should follow when monitoring employee communications. And they detail finance firms' efforts to monitor home workers' professional lives without encroaching too greatly into their personal space. Brandon Carl leads the commercial strategy for large-scale corporates as Executive Vice President in Product Strategy at Smarsh. Sean Hurst is Smarsh's Principal Regulatory Advisor for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Hi Brandon and hi Sean, welcome to Following the Rules.
1: Hi Lucy.
2: Nice to meet you.
0: Uh, So to start, it would be great if you could give us a bit of a run through of Smarsh for any of the listeners who might not be familiar with it. What does it do, where has it come from and where is it heading?
2: Smarsh has been around for nearly 20 years at this point and the company got its start working with small broker-dealers and what was an emerging field of of compliance and regulation. And over time, we've grown pretty markedly. At this point, we have nearly 7,000 customers, and we're the lead provider of compliance and regulatory software with respect to communications and information archiving. And so what we do is uh, we provide all of the technologies required to capture, to archive and retain, to analyze with AI, and then to act on the specific market misconduct and regulatory requirements that you have.
0: So you mentioned 7,000 customers. Are you able to give me a, a sense of what the profile of client you have in the financial services space is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and of those 7,000, nearly all of those are financial services. It really is an area that the company's invested a lot. And our goal is to understand the space and to be the single best provider to these firms in the industry. With respect to the profile, it really varies we have everything from the absolute largest banks in the world we work with nine out of 10 of the top banks in some capacity from across the product portfolio and then down into one two three person broker dealer wealth management shops and so we really have a, a strong spectrum and the company's organized itself around two product portfolios one built for what we call the corporate or the SMB space and then the separate a second for the enterprise so that we can meet the specific needs of each
0: so a huge brand within this space This technology is born of regulatory requirements in the US, UK and across the EU for financial services firms to preserve, monitor and manage business communications. In the UK and the EU, those rules are currently undergoing large scale reviews. Sean, how do you expect those reviews to change firms' communication surveillance requirements?
1: It's pretty robust as it is. We already are required to capture all communications regarding anything to do with the client making a deal with a financial services firm. But I think the only change that potentially could come in is maybe a bit of a broader requirement around who is subject to these communications capture. So currently we're talking about capturing anything to do with a trader, maybe dealing with a client. And if it could lead to a transaction that needs to be captured, whether that is your chat It could be on email, it could be on Microsoft Teams, it could be on the phone, right, it could be voice, and it could be in person as well. So it is pretty broad as it is, but if that branches out and it starts moving a bit wider than that, maybe prospects where there isn't a deal being talked about, that's potentially where it could go. But time will tell, they aren't really exposing too much of of what changes we're going to be seeing around the communications piece, at least here in, in the EU and the UK.
0: Okay. Interesting. Brandon, depending on where you sit in the financial services space, firms are at varying stages of embracing communication surveillance technologies, such mm-hmm. as those provided by SMASH. I'm interested to know what good looks like here. What's a good communication surveillance process in your view?
2: Sure. And to your point, one of the things that's really interesting is I think that the industry at large has lacked a north star in this. One of the things that uh, we've been working across our customers to do is to put together a technology maturity model in this space to help people understand that exact question. But a couple of things that I will talk through. The way that we think about this effectively in terms of what's good is to break this down into your capture program, your information archive, your surveillance capabilities your e-discovery, and then how everything is integrated together. And so what we end up seeing on effectively the ends of the spectrum, right? From a capture standpoint, on the non-compliant end of the spectrum, you'll have people who primarily still just capture email. It's a little bit shocking, but they're still out there. And then as you go through maturity in terms of what's good there, you need to make sure that it's not just email, but that you're picking up your collaboration channels, mobile, voice, Some people are beginning to look at at video in terms of things there, your social channels. And then within that, you need to make sure that you're actually capturing all of the rich content, right? Historically, a lot of firms have actually compressed this down into an email file and they lose things like emojis or reactions or threading or edits. Even now we're seeing within collaboration Uh, Tools like online whiteboarding and the like, where people wanted to understand the full history of what's happened there. So from a capture program, good, make sure that you have all of the key channels that you communicate both internally and with your customers on. From an archive standpoint, if you move on, on one end, you've effectively got old on premise hardware that really functions mostly as storage and can take hours or days to perform a search. And most teams for obvious reasons can't actually operate within that. And as you move through the spectrum towards best-in-class, what you end up with is that you need the ability to have elastic storage and elastic compute capabilities, all built within public cloud. Uh, Depending on the firm, you may need to do that multi-region to meet your data residency or jurisdiction requirements. And then we see customers with up to tens of petabytes worth of data. And you need to do, introduce concepts like data lifecycle management so that you can choose and tier and say, my priority data are my investment banker emails. My less priority data are the trade confirmations that I send out for our automated trading systems within that. So within information archiving, you know, as you push the envelope, you effectively need to get to massive scale to be able to support what you need. And you need the economics and the structure to be able to support that, too. Within surveillance, what we see is this. On one end of the spectrum, people may cover effectively their supervisory requirements with basic keyword searching. As you move through the spectrum there, what we end up seeing for the advanced companies is a couple fold. Uh, The first is from a technology standpoint, they're integrating their first and second line of defense functions. They're keeping the risk and controls and organizational benefits of those, those separate lines of defense, but they're bringing together the data, the policies, the tech stack beneath that And for your advanced companies, what they're doing, they're processing all of their e-coms, processing all of their voice. They're beginning to expand in terms of their language capabilities, and they've instituted advanced uh, AI or natural language processing to enable them to take their alert volumes down, oftentimes between 75 and 90% to get to the scale that they need there. And then lastly through this, the most advanced firms are actually making sure that all of these systems are connected end-to-end with each other. Meaning one of the key things you need to do to remain compliant is you need to attest to the fact that all of these communications have been processed. And so that means you need your capture system speaking to how you store the data, speaking to how you run your analytics and your AI, and then your surveillance and supervisory functions on that. And so the most advanced firms in in the space are making sure that end-to-end they have all of their systems connected to process those pipelines.
0: Okay, what percentage of the financial services space would you say achieve that that Mm -hmm. top tier of response to this?
2: It really depends mostly actually by what swim lane it's in. So we see in certain cases, people who are very advanced in terms of their capture capabilities, but they might have an early generation supervision or surveillance program. And oftentimes that's because the people responsible are not always the same. And so what I would say is within your tier one organizations, most are now running machine learning or natural language processing in some way, shape or form. And you're beginning to see the more advanced ones, I would say within the top 10 to 20% are focused on things like uh, model risk management, machine learning operations, those sorts of things there. But the within enterprise, the overwhelming majority of the top tier institutions are running some form of machine learning and natural language processing. The shift to cloud and large-scale information lifecycle management, that's probably about a third of the companies, maybe 25% have made that shift to cloud. However, Close to hundred percent are engaged in that. So universally right now we see everybody pushing towards that because they've all gone through this wave of basically their infrastructure, not being able to process what they need. So universally they're moving to that public cloud. And then particularly in the past three months here, mobile compliance with the WhatsApp fines that are coming out and the increased guidance that the regulators are offering, everybody's making sure that they shift from a policy-based approach where they said, please don't use these tools, to a technology-based approach where they say, we have the appropriate uh, controls in place to be able to govern this.
0: That's interesting because those in your space have long said a policy that bans use of these tools is ineffective and actually quite outdated. And the most effective route is to find a way to capture that communication. So it's interesting to hear that firms are actually listening to that message now.
1: hmm There is a common thread that I see with quite a few clients that we speak to where things like WhatsApp, they say, well, we don't need to capture it, right? Because we've told our staff that they cannot use WhatsApp for business communications. But if something happens down the line and someone gets caught out for giving advice over WhatsApp and maybe something happens off the back of that, the regulator is not going to think, well, you told them, so that's all right then. They're going to say... Well, there are technologies available to capture this information and effectively monitor it, and you haven't taken that on board. Your responsibility is to take that on board. So I I think people are starting to realize that there's a few companies that are still holding out, but I I think there's a far more open approach to this, especially with what's happened over the last two years. The change in the way that we work, we all know that, you know, if you're a trader before two and a bit years ago, you would have to go and stick your phone into a cage when you enter in the trading room, right? You can't do that now. People are trading from home. And how do you monitor their cell phone usage? You can't. So you have to do everything you can to be able to monitor those communications and just enable your staff to work in the best way that they can work. And at the same time, just comply with your responsibilities as well
0: okay for those that might be reluctant to invest significantly in in their communication surveillance capabilities what are the benefits to doing so what are the risks of not doing so
2: you've got a couple different things i would divide this up into effectively the risk side and then the business efficiency side right so from a risk standpoint i think we're all pretty familiar at this point with the size of the regulatory fines that are coming out with this uh, sort of thing. But then in addition to that, some of the brand risk and reputational risk that's there. And so that's always been there conceptually, Lucy. But as Sean has pointed out, as you have hybrid work that's really taken root, the surface area for these sorts of things, right? Digital communication as opposed to in-person communication has become the status quo. And so the number of these risks that are out there has has actually gone up pretty dramatically. So on one hand, we do encourage people to make the case for the budget because their risks are naturally increasing for these sorts of things. On the economic side and the benefit side of things, we have reached a point where due to public cloud infrastructure, and some of this AI and NLP technology, you can actually get efficiencies that you could never have before, right? So, if you can imagine, if you can reduce your irrelevant or less relevant alert volumes by 75 to 95%, suddenly the team that you have can handle that increased workload, or they can be involved in more investigatory mechanisms to help you de-risk that further. And so there's actually quite a, a significant economic benefit to making use of you know, augmenting your compliance team via these machine learning technologies.
1: I'm also seeing another benefit, it's not something we talk about because we're We're a company to help you meet your compliance needs, but there is also the the aspect of now that that you have this data, you have all this communications in a format that is easily searchable, that you can apply these machine learning algorithms against it. There's potential there to actually make money off the back of this. Missed buy signals, that's a big one. I've spoken to a couple of customers that are considering using the ability for the NLP to start figuring out, well, we're seeing that these three clients, there's some signals there that are saying that they're ready to purchase and there's not enough focus put on them. Let's align our focus down that way. And I I think we're going to see a lot more of that over time as people realize just the power of having all this communication in one place and being able to search it so easily and effectively and and quickly. So I, I think there are going to be some more benefits drawn out over time beyond just making a case for, reducing the amount of time that it takes to you know, do your compliance uh, reviews. There's going to be a lot more that comes off the back of it as well.
0: It's interesting you say that because as Brandon said, you, there is a huge volume of data being collected now and I, and I was keen to ask you about how that data could be used, not just for compliance perspective, but from a business intelligence perspective as well. Are there any other examples that you could give me and are there any regulatory pressures that might prevent firms from delving too deeply into the data that they're collecting?
2: And it's a good question. So within the use cases, obviously you start off with the traditional market misconduct and all of the regulatory needs from there. We've seen firms take a deep look at cybersecurity and insider risk. So inclusive of everything from workplace violence to intellectual property theft, to things like bullying within the organization. And what is the the risk of effectively those nefarious insiders? There aren't many, but most firms have a few within that. We see things within uh, culture in in particular. Effectively, do I have a positive workplace culture? Am I experiencing sexual harassment, racism, bullying, those sorts of things? You could very well make the case that we will look back at some point and say it was Byzantine, the fact that firms may have had these sorts of activities going on almost in full purview and and being unaware. And then you get into some of the other things that are, are, are a little bit more pragmatic, but also very interesting. So Sean had mentioned the ability to do missed opportunities reports, right? To service your customers better by understanding, hey, we we missed this. Someone was away from the desk. They were grabbing lunch. This was a great opportunity. We're really sorry that we missed that. So being able to, to understand their customers better, but also beginning to get into things like operations and understanding, okay, there are errors that exist. There's nothing more expensive than an out trade, right? And so if you can take this communications data, look at that. It's a pretty powerful thing. Now, so you've basically got risk, you've got cybersecurity, you have culture, you have operations, you have revenue and and sales opportunities. But where the industry is at large right now, and I think this is appropriate, is asking the question, what is the ethical use of communications data? So on one end of the spectrum, in the event that the technology could provide early detections for, God forbid, a shooting in a workplace I think everybody would say the corporate good outweighs all of anything else within that case, right? Because you want to make sure that your workplace is safe. If on the other end of the spectrum, and we don't do any of this, people were tracking employee happiness on an individual level and plotting individual sentiment on things, I think we would all appropriately feel our skin crawl a little bit and say, that's actually not an appropriate use of things. And so when any new technology comes in place, it's really incumbent upon the industry to come together and say, okay, what are the appropriate uses of this, where we benefit our customers and we benefit our employees. And that lens of customer employee before company is actually the most important lens to take, I think, through that.
0: Okay. And I'd like to get to the ethics point later because you have invested some thinking into the guidelines around that. But before we get there, Smarsh launched a new communication surveillance tool in November. Could you tell me a little bit more about what services that provides regulated firms and how it differs from other products in the market?
2: Absolutely. So I came over to Smarsh vis-a-vis the acquisition of a company called Digital Reasoning. And Digital Reasoning got its start effectively working with government institutions to look through very large amounts of news and communications data to try to facilitate anti-terrorism. And over time, what we realized is that, this, that the same technology could be used to do things like detect market misconduct, to detect that uh, human trafficking was another industry that we worked in to help prevent that and uh, within healthcare. And so when Smarsh acquired digital reasoning, what we did is we took that 20 years worth of R&D that had gone into that core AI and ML platform, and we began to move this into the Smarsh platform. And so the combination is effectively what you have is you have an enterprise-hardened a highly scalable public cloud infrastructure within the SMARSH technology, coupled with what will be our third generation best in class machine learning and NLP capabilities within digital reasoning. And so what you see within this new product coming to market is really the joining or the synthesis of both of those things, Lucy. But then in addition to that, not only did we take the DR tech, we moved it a step further. And And by that, what do I mean? I mean, We're actually productizing machine learning, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. Machine learning has traditionally been primarily a professional services industry. If you look at the likes of Palantir or any of the big five consulting. And so one of the key things, and we can speak to this a little bit more that we've done is we've taken all of this go live knowledge, all of these partnerships with these banks. And we're really packaging that into something that's as close to productized machine learning as anybody in the space has been able to achieve.
0: And what do you mean by productized machine learning?
2: Maybe let's start with what I would consider to be non-productized machine learning, right? The way that most machine learning ends up being done is that you go through and you first source your data, and then you have human annotators that annotate these giant data sets. And then you have to cleanse that and make sure that they're all in agreement with each other so that you get purity to your training data. And then a data scientist will get everything packaged that needs to go through model risk management and the like. And then they've got to get that bundled and into some sort, form of runtime and and throughout into the system with appropriate checks and balances. And so that entire process, which is where the industry started five to seven years ago, is extremely hands-on, right? Like it's really process and people-driven with respect to that. And so as we move to productize machine learning, what do you do? It's a couple of different things. First of all, you're able to standardize the core machine learning classification technologies that are in place so we've collected large enough clean enough data sets that we can actually create uh, those standardized machine learning models to power things number two we're able to build those with not only great process but appropriate reporting and explainability with respect to that number three they become packaged so that you have things like versioning and rollback and change control and those sorts of things that you have available to your system And then number four, you can manage these sorts of things through an interface so that if you need to be able to augment the system or make a change here or there, you have the ability to do that. And so just like traditional software now, we will be at a spot where we can roll out a new version of a machine learning model and someone can effectively take that vis-a-vis software as opposed to situations in the past where effectively, you've got a large team of people that are doing all of the service components of this and
1: following a process and working together. That's going to help a lot with the approach that the regulators take towards this. They obviously are addressing machine learning, AI, and they're going to be, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more information coming out in the next few years. But when you have a productized approach, it's a lot easier for them to assess how good the product is and whether it's it's something that they would accept. When it's a fully customized approach that's different for every company, It's a nearly impossible task for the regulators to try and address as well. So I, I think that productized approach, it's, it's going to be hugely important for financial firms to be able to say, "Well, here it is. This is the approach we're taking. Oh, it's the SMASH approach. Great. We've already seen that in another 10 companies.
0: That's so, interesting you mentioned that, Sean, because I, I wanted to ask what regulators' level of familiarity with this technology is. And What advice you might have for the financial services executive tasked with explaining this technology to the regulator
1: it's it's a tough one so the regulators well at least here in the uk the the fca have addressed this for at least the last almost five six years there's been a few white papers they put out so it's it's not that they're ignoring it it's just it's quite a difficult area to address directly for some reasons, like the fact that these approaches weren't productized. They were all quite manual and hands-on. Everything was customized. There was a lot of secrecy maybe behind it, but things are changing. I think the regulators will be giving a bit more guidance around it, but as we've always seen with regulators, they're not going to give you a direct guidance as to what you can, what you can't use. There will be a general guidance around You can use AI, you can use it to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, We're not going to tell you which AI to use or how to use it, but that's just the general approach from the regulators. I don't think they've finalized what their approach will be. What, What my advice would be to financial services institutions is don't let that stop you from embracing it. Don't let that stop you from investigating it. The fact is, AI, it isn't a magic box. It's something that's going to help augment your compliance process. It's it's not something you switch on and leave it and you're going to walk away and it'll do its job for the next year. That's just not how it works. So embracing this technology is going to optimize your workflow. It's going to help you reduce the number of false positives and false negatives. It's going to reduce the amount of effort you're going to need to put in from a compliance team standpoint compliance teams aren't necessarily getting bigger the communications and things that they have to monitor are getting bigger but anything you can use any tools that you can use to make that an easier process they should embrace it they should be investigating they should be trying to implement it within their current processes so don't wait for the don't wait for the regulator to say okay everybody go ahead you need to use ai now start doing it now because you'll see the benefits almost straight away
2: And Lucy, one thing to add to to what Sean's saying, five to seven years ago, the banks were leading the regulators in terms of AI, and one of the most interesting shifts that I have personally seen is, while every regulator is different, there are now some regulators that are out there that are leading the banks, sometimes by a considerable margin. So some of the regulators are more comfortable with public cloud than some of the banks are, and some of the technologies that are being implemented at many of these regulators is very impressive. And so one of the things that I see happening is in some cases, people are moving from the regulators now to the banks to actually teach the banks as to how to do this. And to Sean's point, right? Like the race is on in terms of these technologies, it's no longer a should you, but like effectively, how do you set up the right infrastructure for long-term innovation?
0: That's interesting what you say about the regulators leading the banks. Is there any particular jurisdiction where that's especially pronounced?
2: Interestingly, I see the UK regulators as having done some incredible things. I was going to say the same thing. They've
1: set up an amazing tech team. It it instills a lot of confidence that they really are doing some amazing things. And I've seen that definitely there's been a, a big shift in the way that they're approaching things. They're not waiting for people to report problems with tech or ask the questions they're out there being a bit more proactive so that's why I'm pretty confident over the next year or two you're going to see a lot more around AI around the machine learning piece but you're also going to see a lot more around the crypto space you're going to see a lot more around the decentralized communications and blockchain things like that and we're already seeing it you'll see it in the news that there will be more communication like that and they they are on the forefront of it which is it's very comforting to see. Hopefully it's something that the financial institutions are feeling a bit more comfort to see that happening.
0: Okay, well that be music to the FCA CEO's ears I'm sure because that was the premise under which he joined the FCA was to make it into a more of a proactive regulator. So it's interesting to hear that that's already been noticed. Stepping back to the SMASH communications intelligence platform that was launched in November, does that track social media platforms as well as the more traditional communications sources and what are the challenges around that
2: yeah so so what's interesting in particular about the core of the the capture and then the archiving technology which then powers what we do in surveillance is the capture tech has been built to be able to pull in just about any channel and so we are constantly adding new channels all the time we have customers that add their own channels and the like and so we do have and we support customers bringing in YouTube, bringing in Reddit, bringing in TikTok, bringing in Twitter, all of those things that are in place. So yeah, we absolutely you pull that in. And I think that the specific interesting and key parts of that are just, again, the speed with which some of these things changes, right? Like it's easier for the technology to change, but a lot of times the financial institutions themselves have to move very, very quickly with respect to these things, number one. And then number two, just making sure that they are making appropriate use of surveillance and, and key technologies with respect to things like outside business activity in particular on, on social media.
0: In a recent white paper on communications monitoring, which was written by you, Brandon, you mentioned that Smarter developed a set of guidelines for ethical communications monitoring. Could you tell us a bit more about those guidelines?
2: Yeah, absolutely. In terms of guiding principles, a few stand out to me personally within how we think about this because The technology can, and so then the question is, should it, right? The first thing, just at at risk of stating something that might seem obvious, is that any use of this technology should be used to create a safer, healthier workplace and make sure that it respects individual privacy. So I think we just need to have that as a cornerstone with respect to things. The second key piece is that the technology should work to decrease rather than increase institutional biases, like efforts should be made to remove bias and discrimination. And within that, one of the things that most people don't realize is the extent of bias that's already within human processes. So the first bit, making the workplace safer and healthier. The second is removing bias. And the third is that the decisions need to be auditable, consistent, and transparent. If you have your transparency, you you work to remove bias, and then you prioritize the individual, you have the right balance. And then the hard bit for the litmus test Again, my own personal view on this is that any decision that's made needs to figure out how to appropriately balance the corporate good with the privacy of the individual and make sure that there's open conversations about what that looks like. And in many cases, that might take the form of disclosure to employees, right? Hey, FYI, we use large-scale AI and ML to detect any workplace violence threats that go on so that we are able to get ahead of, you know, workplace shooting, right? Just so you know, this actually happens in this way. And we do this actually for the safety of the, you know, the people involved here. So those are the things that we're figuring out. It's a hard topic.
0: It is. Yes. And it's interesting to hear your views on it. You mentioned the need to remove bias and discrimination from the process. How can that be done? And what examples do you have of biases that already exist? within that process.
2: There are a couple of different ways that you can do this. Number one, and importantly, you make efforts to make sure that the training data that you use for machine learning that you've gone through um, and reviewed that as much as possible and created the correct gold standard set. The the reason for that is a machine learning algorithm learns to mimic whatever you teach it. (laughs) And so if you teach it bias and discrimination, right, like it's not going to know that that's wrong. It will simply know that that's the way that it was trained. And so the first thing you have to do is to make sure that you put a lot of effort into making sure that these data sets are cleansed, that you tried to remove bias from the judgments that are there. The second thing that's very important, and our chief analytics officer has actually written a book on this, is explainability understanding why a system is actually making the decision that it is right and there are different approaches to machine learning that you can take and in the end for the main things that power our system we have always chosen to make the decision that will benefit explainability as a priority on this sort of thing so that people have a fundamental and basic infrastructure for that what happens when this was when this goes wrong some of the things that i I have seen personally is if you're not careful about the technologies that you use, it can profile women's names versus men's names or certain ethnicities versus others in terms of not being individuals would commit misconduct necessarily, but the machine might have a slight bias one way or another towards how it would actually judge those sorts of things. Even before you entered into any of your own training, just from downloading that open source repo off of the internet, these biases actually exist. So it's a really hard problem. We're all working to root out as much of it as we can, and we'll continue to do that. And by nature of the way that these things are trained, I don't think we'll ever be able to remove all bias, but we absolutely need to be making every effort to remove as much of it as possible.
0: Right. The privacy considerations of surveillance tools has been mentioned a couple of times during this conversation. When thousands of financial services workers shifted into home offices in the early stages of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern about these tools encroaching on individuals' privacy. How has the industry reacted since? What are the conversations around privacy now?
1: We're seeing the concern that you're talking about. That's definitely something that comes up and many of the conversations hedge around that. It's like, well, how do we resolve this? They know that they need to address it so they can address it with their their staff and their employees. The the problem you have, though, is if you're using work communication, there's an expectation that that work communication is going to be monitored because there's a responsibility that the company has towards that. This is a tough one. From my perspective, the advice that I'm giving to the individuals that are asking these questions, compliance officers, is that they need to be setting up a, a very transparent line of communication with their employees. What is being monitored, what isn't being monitored, and why? I know from my experience, I worked in the banking sector for many, many years, and that transparency wasn't always there. Nobody really knew what was being monitored. Nobody really knew what was being searched. Which forms of communication were phone calls recorded? Were, were your chat messages recorded? We did get an alert at the beginning of the day when you log in, saying that your communications are subject to to monitoring. But that's not enough anymore. I think there needs to be that level of transparency, and it goes towards what Brandon was saying as well. It's just that you know, removing the bias, you know, treating not only your customers fairly but treating your employees fairly, and I think that's the only real approach you can do. There's a responsibility that financial institutions have in monitoring their employees. That's just the bottom line. You just got to do it in an ethical way. You've got to do it in a way that you're not breaching their trust. How do you do that? I think it just comes down to that transparency, right? If I'm using WhatsApp to be able to communicate with colleagues, and I might be saying something that's inappropriate. If you're using work devices to do that sort of thing, you, you need to be monitored and tracked.
2: If you think about it, previously, there were fairly clean boundaries between the physical office and your physical home. And effectively, what's happened is now those physical boundaries have become blurred. And so what I see companies doing is now they're having to figure out how to create digital boundaries that replace those physical boundaries that were there. And so I'll give an example, Lucy, of where this has swung one direction and where it's swung the other direction on things. So in the event of increased communications capture on this has been within mobile in particular. And but what firms are, are doing is saying, hey, instead of actually capturing all of your personal WhatsApp communications, we will enable you to have a secondary application that enables you to use WhatsApp. For your business contacts in an appropriate environment and use case with that. We just made an announcement with respect to an acquisition that gives us really the, the most full-fledged set of capabilities in this space. So I do see firms increasing their supervision and surveillance responsibilities here by providing a thoughtful alternative. Now, on the other end, where I've heard this with respect to where people are having the most difficulty is video. Voice people can get comfortable with, right? I think that most employees appreciate that they can actually conduct a meeting while walking to the grocery store or to pick up their kid or those sorts of things. But the area that I think has been the biggest struggle is people saying, from a privacy standpoint, if I'm recording someone's bedroom, that feels like an invasion of privacy and and the like. And so I think that what they're trying to figure out is, can they capture the most important aspects of that communication through voice only as opposed to the video side. And I think it's really an open question for uh, discussion and debate in terms of the trade-offs between the individual privacy. And or at least I've heard various of the banks, some have said, we're capturing some video, but others have come and said, we've met internally and we believe that the privacy issues that this creates means that we are making a decision at this moment that we are not actually capturing the video of at-home employees. So
0: there's a lot of focus on this issue currently.
2: Yeah. Which is good, right? It's a tough issue. And so there should be tension as everyone sorts that out in terms of the right thing to do.
0: And I'm interested to know what both of you think is coming next in the communication surveillance space. Where do we go from here?
1: A significant event that has occurred in the last month or two uh, is around Russia. And that brings in sanctions. Sanctions on an unprecedented level. We've never seen them as broad as this. And that Create some concerns. The sanctions that we have in place today, the bankers could have been dealing with some of these clients for the last 20 years, and they are going to continue communicating with them, even though they possibly shouldn't, because they want to maintain that relationship. The sanctions will end at some point, and they want to maintain their clients. And there's a responsibility on these banks to make sure they're capturing this information. The traders, the bankers are going to choose to use communications that might not typically be monitored or captured, things like WhatsApp. And it just goes again to prove that that is so important to make sure you know how your staff are talking to your clients. The different platforms that you have today to be able to communicate, it's growing on a nearly daily basis. And it does create a big challenge, but there are solutions in place and companies like Smash are there to help clients with these problems. It's it's definitely going to be getting a lot of attention around things like blockchain, uh, cryptocurrencies, and the decentralized communication. Obviously, that's where we would be most interested. And with decentralized communication, from a privacy perspective, who owns the responsibility around monitoring or keeping hold of that information? And I think those conversations are going to be coming up more and more over time. You could argue that we already are taking care of some of these forms of communication as it is today. We keep talking about WhatsApp and we have a solution in place for that. And for some of the others as well that are out there. But when it comes to decentralized communication, for, from my perspective as a privacy expert, that, that is a real concern. Because with GDPR, you've got the concept of a data processor. Uh, who's the data processor in that case, right? When the data is not something you're managing or controlling. So from the data privacy perspective, it it does muddy the waters a little bit. ESG is another one that I see being something that is, is a bit of a buzzword right now, but it is really getting a lot of attention. That's environmental, social, governance. There's a responsibility that companies have to make sure that they are complying with the ESG mantra. We are particularly going to be focusing on the S and the G, the social and the governance side of things. But there's a responsibility to make sure that your staff are dealing with each other in a responsible way. There's no bullying going on and that sort of thing. You need to be able to capture all this communication to be able to monitor it and be able to come up with some decent oversight. When it comes to financial services, already today, there's ESG scoring that are going alongside people's pensions. People are very interested in knowing how their money is being invested. And that's going to branch out far further than just pensions. It's going to go towards any product that you might invest in. And you need to be able to monitor and track that. And that just adds it adds, it adds a bit of complexity for compliance teams because the type of data that's involved, but it does change the, the concept of how you're monitoring these communications. What are you monitoring for? And, and again, it goes back towards the machine learning and AI. You need that. To be able to do this extra work, you can't just add extra work and expect the same number of individuals to be able to track and monitor it. So the social side of it, keeping track of things like bullying, inappropriate behavior, racism, all that sort of information that, that could be coming out of your your communications. There's going to be a lot of focus on that. Well, there already is. I'm sure that many, many of our customers are already addressing this, but it's just going to become a bit more formalized. And you're going to see a lot more of that being spoken about in roundtables and events over the the coming years.
2: Yeah, and building on what Sean was saying within that, a couple trends. So within the ESG, part of what I I see is the beginnings of some shifting and thinking at some of the best financial institutions where effectively, historically, communication surveillance was about prevention. And it kind of worked because you had this gated area where everyone showed up. And even if they didn't check their phones, everyone knew like you weren't really supposed to use that. And so a lot of it was focused on detecting just the bad behaviors. But now as people are working in a distributed way, culture actually matters a lot, right? Because culture is the set of things that even when someone's not (laughs) on a trading floor, when no one can see what they're doing, they're still doing the right thing. And so within the ESG the context, I see a lot of the lead banks thinking about how do we create the right workplace cultures? And can we use these technologies to understand what that looks like? That's the first key thing that I see happening. The second key thing within this is this concept of machine learning ops and model risk management is really starting to blossom. And in our view, it will continue. The way that I like to think about this is You've got the first flight or airplane flight that went off from Kitty Hawk and the Wright brothers just pushed through and they were able to fly the plane. And if you fast forward to today, right, think about all of the engineering systems that there are to simulate the flights. And then the planes go through wind tunnels and testing and those sorts of things. And then you have all the air traffic controllers that are making sure that the whole system actually works in a place. And over the course of a hundred years, you've gone from two guys jumping off a cliff, basically (laughs) to having all the infrastructure in place for the system to actually run And I think that where these technologies have been five to seven years ago was the equivalent of Kitty Hawk. Like you had a lot of smart people who saw an issue and they moved forward with a new technology to solve the problem. But as you fast forward, you need for mission critical systems, regulatory grade artificial intelligence or infrastructure that's in place. And so we see a lot of these investments actually coming into that in terms of how do you streamline this and and effectively what's the core problem you're solving. How do you create compliance agility while having basically stability within the program? So second key area of of focus. And then the third is within expansion of these programs, how do they get the infrastructure in place? Everyone shifted. They've got teams, they've got Zoom, they've got Slack, the communications infrastructure is in place, but now that's in place. How do you actually make sure that you capture and supervise that? And in particular... How do you tackle the issue of language? That's really the next frontier. We've spent about two years of research on this. We have some patents in the space, but if you had 20 compliance policies and you rolled out machine learning with model risk management across each of those, and now you want to do that across 10 languages, and now you want to do that across written and spoken and video communications, right? You can't manage 600 different policies and still have a functioning compliance program, You've basically had to staff up to do that. So we have a lot of focus internally, and we see a lot of people focused on, amongst our customer base, how do you use machine learning to actually create scalable approaches to things like voice, to things like language, and the like on that front.
0: Okay. Lastly, what's one takeaway you'd like listeners to remember from this episode?
2: The the biggest takeaway that I would say for listeners is, is this it's really critical in our view that firms have a communications data strategy, right? And and by that, what I mean is the volume and type of this communications data has absolutely exploded. And accordingly, both the opportunities, but the surface area of risk has also exploded. And the regulations and governance that are around this has increased commensurately and appropriately within that. And instead of beginning to think about these as point solutions about, oh, now how do i add teams capture or oh how do i get more storage for my archive that i have in place i think it's really critical that people now look at communications data and understand that it's not just an extension of structured data communications data is really unique in and of like both how it's structured the variety and the regulations around that and so lucy the biggest takeaway i would encourage people to do is to think strategically not just about the next six to 12 months, but how do you set up the infrastructure that you need for the next 10 to 20 years for your firm? Because that's really what I think we're in the
1: middle of right now. My my point would be just to follow off the back of that. It's time to invest. Digital transformation has been a massive topic over the last two years. And it's time to also consider what that means. You've accelerated the digital transformation of how you do things. Now you've got to think about how you are going to monitor those things that you're doing.
0: This has been a really interesting conversation and I think Smash is a fascinating business and I wish you both the best of luck in your endeavours. Thank you very much for your time today.
2: Thank you very much, Lucy. Yeah, likewise, Lucy.
0: You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.